Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to episode 118 of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Adam. Today we return to a familiar theme on this podcast and look at the antics of some more gangsters, this time around Hertfordshire and Essex, which in today's story left at least three people dead. As always, when we look at such stories, the interconnectivity between the main players is just astonishing to see. Before we set some context with the songs we listened to at the time of today's story, October 2003, I've been reflecting on what a member of the Facebook group highlighted to me this week, which is that I slate nearly all the music, then always end on be kind and stay classy. So this week, all I'd like to say about the chart is that the UK number one, Where Is The Love by the Black Eyed Peas, is a great song. And I won't mention the tedium that is Dido at number four with, well, what does it matter? As they all sound identical anyway, don't they? In the US, the top spot was Beyonce featuring Sean Paul with Baby Boy. And in the Australian album charts, top of the pile was Innocent Eyes by Delta Goodrum. In the news this month from New York, the Staten Island Ferry collided with a pier at the terminal in Staten Island, killing 11 people and injuring 43. Concorde made its last commercial flight this month and working class hero Ian Duncan Smith resigned after serving just two years as leader of the Tory party. And in sport, the mighty Leeds United beat Blackburn 2-1, one of the few victories in an uncharacteristically poor season that saw us relegated from the Premier League where we will, of course, return in glory next season. Just before we start, I would like to thank all my supporters on Patreon. Please do support the show at patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. There are 25 bonus episodes waiting for you, and without your support, I wouldn't be releasing this podcast every week. Today's story comes from Hoddesdon in Hertfordshire, a small town just outside the M25 north of London, and just a few miles from where I grew up in Hertford. I once met former Spurs goalkeeper Eric Torsvet at the gym there, Obviously, I was bench-pressing much more than him, and we had some great nights out here in my teen years. Hoddesdon, that is, rather than the gym. But anyway, on to today's story. At six foot two tall and devoted to his bodybuilding regime, Dave King was a big unit. In the 90s, he got involved in a fair amount of violent scraps, seemingly without repercussions. But his luck ran out on one occasion, when the occasional bodyguard was sent to prison for violently assaulting a man in nearby Stevenage and hiding his victim in the boot of a car. When he was released, the sales of drugs, especially ecstasy in nightclubs, was booming and working as a club doorman, he quickly became involved in helping clubbers get what they wanted. It paid well, but it put him in touch with some people that he really wanted to keep as friends, not enemies. It was a lifestyle where violence was common and respect mattered. His career really picked up speed after he came across the radar of Tony Tucker, 
one of the infamous members of the Essex Boys gang. You will recall that in 1995, Tucker, along with Patrick Tate and Craig Rolfe, were massacred in a Range Rover in a remote part of Essex, Rettenden, near Chelmsford. You are pretty likely to have seen one of the many films and documentaries about this violent incident. It seemed that Dave, who had developed a reputation as being useful with his fists, met Tucker soon after his release from prison when he went to Tucker's North London shop, which specialised in muscle-building supplements. This opened up for him some opportunities for some different work to work in the door, and there were some more glamorous gigs, such as when along with Tucker, he sometimes worked as a bodyguard for boxer Nigel Benn, one of the most exciting fighters I've ever watched in the ring. Seeing the money made by others made Dave consider his options. He was ambitious, and he wanted to make some real money for himself, so he launched his own nightclub in Stevenage. It was called the Renaissance, and it had a reputation as a place where you went to get drugs. One bar manager in the town said, It was a drugs haven. It was full of them. And for a while, things went really well and the cash rolled in. But by 2002, after a number of high-profile deaths of young people across the UK, just out for the night, police were under pressure to stop this seemingly free flow of drugs in some clubs and the nightclub business became much more difficult for Dave. Eventually, the Renaissance was closed down by the council after not paying its rent. But Dave wasn't just into violence and drugs. He was also involved in the lucrative London trade in stolen watches, earning him the nickname Rolex Dave, along with Muscles. And he was rumoured to sell the watches to a wide variety of global customers, including the Russian Mafia. Dave King was just 32 when he was murdered in what seemed to be a contract killing. On the 3rd of October 2003, Dave left the Physical Limits gym in Brewery Road, Hoddesdon, having completed his workout, and a white van pulled up alongside him. A man sitting in the passenger seat took aim and fired at the father of two with a Kalashnikov assault rifle, discharging at least 26 rounds of armour-piercing ammunition, killing him instantly. It was just a normal day in a suburban part of the home counties, but Dave King died on the pavement in Hoddesdon, leaving his children without a father. He was just 32 when he died. Dave's parents, Jimmy and Norma, remember their Glasgow-born son as a football-crazy family man. They said in a statement following his death, he was ambitious for himself and for his family, and he wanted the very best for his children. A devout Muslim, David's bodybuilding formed a great part of his lifestyle. He was proud of his appearance and a perfectionist in all that he did. But as you can imagine, not all spoke so highly of Dave King. An employee said of his old boss, He was a nice fellow in his way, but you wouldn't want to get on the wrong side of him. He lived life to the full. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. And former gangland enforcer, whatever that means, turned author John Rollinson said in his book Gaffer, that Dave had angered many with his attitude. He joined up with our firm after coming out of prison, much against my better judgment. Once he did, he systematically began to turn everybody against each other, and this caused a lot of bad feeling. Mind you, this attitude from Rollinson is maybe not surprising, as Dave once stabbed him with a 10-inch knife in a nightclub in Greys in Essex. Another criminal source said of Dave that he was a violent bully, 
that others were deeply loyal to him and described him as a man who showed great love and kindness towards his friends and his family. His murder came as a shock to the community in Hoddesdon, but less so to those who knew him and his associates. Police were well aware of Dave King and his involvement in drug dealing and handling stolen property, especially watches. But a police source was quoted soon after the killing saying, whatever someone's past, no one deserves to be killed like this. But it was the way of the world he operated in. The difficulty with the police investigation from an early stage was twofold. Firstly, due to his lifestyle and the circles he moved in, there were any number of people who were likely to have a motive to kill him. And secondly, getting people to talk, especially on the record, was difficult for obvious reasons. But from talking to informants and others willing to reveal pieces of information, detectives quickly reached a conclusion that Dave was gunned down in a revenge gangland dispute because other gangsters believed that he was a police informer. They believed this shooting arose from a dispute between rival villains over a £100,000 heroin shipment heading for France that had been intercepted by customs in June 2002. Dave was arrested with four other men over the 14 kilogram drug seizure. Another of the men arrested was David Sharma, who'd been a good friend of Dave's for a number of years, as well as two other men, Roger Vincent and David Smith. Five men were charged with drugs offences, but proceedings against Dave were dropped at an early stage. His gangland associates had been harbouring fears for some months that their firm had been infiltrated by a police or customs grass. This isn't uncommon in criminal gangs, as if this is the case, all gang members are likely to be looking at a long stretch in prison. But the ease with which Dave had got off compared to the others pointed the finger towards him as being the informant saving his own skin at the expense of the others. This seeming good fortune led to one of his co-defendants, David Sharma, to shout in open court that Dave King was a grass. In Dave's world of honour and respect, it just wasn't acceptable to be labelled a grass, particularly in such a public place. And word had it that Dave put out a contract on David Sharma in the wake of this accusation. Meanwhile, the firm of which Dave had been a part were making their plans to get rid of Dave, still believing that he'd set them up. It was tit for tat. Dave knew he had a problem, that there was a genuine threat to his life, so he retaliated by taking out the contract on Sharma. But Sharma was so scared of what Dave may do, he fled to Cannes in the south of France, where he went into hiding under a false identity. When Roger Vincent and David Smith heard about the threat to Sharma, they offered to have Dave shot in retaliation for what they believed he had done. The two killers were friends with Sharma, and they offered to kill Dave purely as a favour, with no payment involved. But rather than get their own hands dirty, they hired an armed robber in the shape of 31-year-old Dean Spencer from Manchester to carry out the killing. On this podcast, we've heard about a number of men prepared to kill strangers for money. Most have been, frankly, decidedly amateur, and this was the case here. Spencer armed himself with a Webley pistol and five bullets and went with another man to Dave Stevenage home on September the 22nd, 2003. But Dave had been warned about a possible threat, and he was with his minder, Ian Crocker, when Spencer rocked up. 
Knowing that his life was in danger, David also taken to wearing a bulletproof vest. The men were locked in a standoff, a tense standoff outside Dave's home, before Spencer lost his nerve and fled. A little bizarre, I know. In hindsight, guess he probably wasn't cut out for the gangster life, as he was later arrested for an armed robbery, and then he told detectives about the murder plot against Dave. Luton Crown Court heard he told them, When I saw how big he was, and wearing that bulletproof vest, I knew my little gun would be useless against him. Spencer admitted conspiracy to murder Dave and was sent down. Maybe on release he will find a more suitable career. With form for bottling a big decision, maybe he could be a UK MP. When Vincent and Smith heard Spencer had lost his nerve, once they'd hauled themselves off the floor with astonishment, they realised they would have to deal with the problem themselves. Aware that Dave now knew of the murder plot against him and was routinely wearing a bulletproof vest, they acquired a Hungarian-made Kalashnikov AKS-47 machine gun and loaded it with full metal jacket armour piercing bullets. The AKS-47, an AK-47 with a folding metal stock, is issued mainly to paratroopers and special forces. The ammunition later recovered at the murder scene originated in the Bulgarian, Yugoslavian and Romanian militaries. The journey made by the rifle, which passed through the hands of a notorious Belgian gunrunner, was uncovered by Oxfam as part of its ongoing campaign against the arms trade. The two men were now ready to kill Dave King, using a stolen white transit van and a stolen Mercedes as getaway cars. They kept watch on Dave, waiting for the right opportunity to strike and it happened when they saw him leaving the gym. In a classic drive-by assassination, Vincent sprayed 26 shots at Dave from close range. Five rounds from the three-second burst hit him in the arm, chest and leg as he left the physical limit gym in Hoddesdon. Other rounds were scattered into Dave's car, his friend Ian Crocker, and into the walls of the gym, but luckily no other innocent people were hurt. It was the first time that this nasty, nasty weapon was used in Britain in automatic mode. The killers then sped away from the scene and torched their getaway vehicles. Although nowhere near as inept as their hired help Spencer, who is, Vincent and Smith made amateur mistakes after the murder. The van and stolen Mercedes were later found burnt out, but police were able to collect forensic evidence to link them with the murder scene and the weapons used. Cell site analysis and phone records showed that Vincent and Smith used their own phones until the night before the murder and afterwards bought new ones. CCTV footage placed Smith wearing a distinctive hat at a filling station in Hoddesdon. A rubber glove often used by people at filling stations contained a palm print from which they were able to get DNA. The gun was later recovered by a man who whilst walking near Great Yarmouth in Norfolk saw someone dump a red hold-on into the water and run away. He decided to investigate this strange behaviour by wading into the water and he recovered the bag with the AK-47 and spare rounds of ammunition which matched those used in the shooting. Smith's DNA was found on the gun's magazine and on the weapon and a towel in the holdall had a saliva sample that matched Vincent. And on another towel, police found fibres from a unique rug which was at a flat used by Vincent. 
Police also analysed mobile phone transmissions from Holliston to Cannes, minutes after the shooting. They believed it was Vincent and Smith calling Dave Sharma to tell him they'd murdered Dave. Detectives suspected it was Vincent ringing up and saying, Job done, mate. This was enough to arrest Vincent and Jones. When he was arrested, Vincent, who drove a £100,000 convertible Aston Martin DB7, boasted to detectives that he made a quarter of a million pounds in cash every year from a string of clubs he owned in the east of England. A detective said, Whenever we talked to anyone in the underworld about Vincent, we discovered people were terrified of him. He's not a big man physically, but has a fearsome reputation for violence and has a hired gun. The overwhelming evidence made the job an easy one for the jury and both men were quickly found guilty. The judge ordered father of four Roger Vincent to serve at least 30 years. His getaway driver, David Smith, was sentenced to 25 years. After they were convicted, the judge, Mr Justice Wilkie, said, This was a thoroughly planned, ruthless and brutally executed assassination of a criminal by a small team. It was committed in a public street during daytime and involved an automatic firearm. It was only by great fortune that no other passers-by were seriously injured or worse. Following Dave's death, his assets of 1.6 million were frozen by court order on the grounds that his funds were linked to drug trafficking and money laundering. The assets included his house in Hertfordshire, a £1 million property in London and £7,500 in four bank accounts. After outstanding loans were taken into account, the government's asset recovery agency recovered £610,500 from his estate. As we've seen often on this podcast, especially when we talk about gangs and gangsters, what is so common is the interconnectivity of their lives. And it's the same in our story today. Dave King knew the balance of the risks and rewards of his lifestyle choice. He'd seen many of his friends lose their lives, but one that had affected him in particular was the death of one of his close friends, Darren Pearman, who was stabbed to death in a mass brawl at the Epping Forest Country Club in 1999. Have you heard of this club in Epping in Essex? Back in the day, it was a social haunt of minor celebs such as EastEnders actors, and it featured heavily in the tabloids, like the places where the crowd from TOWIE hang out today. If you aren't in the UK, I won't even attempt to explain TOWIE. Just take a look on YouTube. Underworld sources said that Darren Pearman's stabbing was the result of an argument started by Dave King at a North London pub, which ended in Ronnie Fuller, the head doorman, forcibly ejecting the pair. The club was owned by notorious businessman David Hunt, an interesting man, more of him later. Pearman died from chest wounds, while his younger brother was also stabbed and seriously wounded. Essex Boys gang member turned author, Bernard Omani, who knew both Pearman and his alleged killer Fuller, described the events in his 2004 book, Wanna Be In My Gang, From The Craze To The Essex Boys. He wrote... There were lots of fights. Guns were waved around all the time at the Essex Country Club and if he showed you a hard, almost every woman was available for sex. Adam interjecting, yep, he really did write that. I know, I know. Okay, Bernard, back to you. It was a big ego trip. On each Sunday, the club had a do called The Jungle 
It was the only decent thing happening on that day, and a lot of people who worked on Thursday, Friday and Saturday converged on it. Darren Pearman was a member of the Canning Town firm, probably the best little outfit in London. It was all part of the same group of people as the Intercity firm, which was centred on the West Ham fans gang. They were all very violent. If someone stamped on their foot, they got murdered. Darren Pearman was a space job. He wore cardigans and had his hair in a side parting. He looked like a boffin, but he was a raging lunatic. He was friends with Dave King, and a couple of years ago, they were in Charlie Chan's nightclub. There was a fight in which a man was cut by a bottle or glass. The glassing kicked off a big fight and the doormen got involved. One of them was an ex-wrestler called Ronnie Fuller. Ronnie didn't know the rules. If you're a doorman and you grab people like Pearman and Dave, you're going to get it as well, because they have to keep their front. What you do is say to them, look, if you want to have a go at him, do it outside. I'll kick him out and you can do as you like. Then you throw the other guy out of the fire exit for being drunk, and Dave or whoever would kill them outside. That's the way this respect stuff works. Dave and Pearman wouldn't forget Ronnie's disrespect. And it was a few weeks later when they clashed with him again outside the Epping Forest Country Club. Pearman was stabbed and was pronounced dead by the time he rolled up to Whips Cross Hospital in the back of a cab. But despite two men, Dorman Ronnie Fuller, and another bouncer being arrested and later charged with violent disorder, the case never made it to court. Although the country club is within Essex, it was at that time covered by the Metropolitan Police, which was the investigating force. The Met Police still retains responsibility for the Pearman murder case. A Met Police spokesman said, Two men were originally charged with violent disorder. The charges against them were subsequently dropped by the CPS in 2000. Many perceive that the reason this wasn't pursued further was due to corruption inside the police, and there is speculation and allegations about who was protecting who, and finding the truth is an almost impossible task. But this sort of act is really without consequence, and several months later, after Fuller and his colleague were released from police bail over Pearman's murder, a man on a motorbike blasted Fuller to death on the doorstep of his home. Omani wrote in his book, Later a motorbike hitman shot Runny twice in the head and three times in the chest, killing him outside his home in Grey's Essex, in front of his wife. It was just a day after two bouncers on the door of the country club were shot and injured after a group of men were thrown out. Club manager Peter Pomfret, age 61, whose name was on the lease of the nightclub, was forced to defend the venue against claims that it was a gangster haunt in the press in the following days. And incidentally, in 2008, he was jailed for his role in the £37.5 million complex tax fraud. No one was ever arrested over Fuller's death, and the two police forces never officially confirmed they were linking the two murders. And it has been stated in some press reports they did not believe they were linked. But Omani summed up his theory in his book that the Canning Town firm had refused to cooperate with police and said they would sort it themselves. Fuller, he wrote, had moved around 20 miles from Loughton, near to the country club in Grace, but had not been nearly far enough. In 2011, owner of the club David Hunt, who originates from Canning Town, but now lives in Essex, launched a libel case against the Sunday Times, 
and claims it had wrongly identified him as the kingpin of a series organised crime ring that was linked to several unsolved murders. But in 2013, the judge rejected Hunt's claim, saying the journalists had been correct to describe the claimant as a violent and dangerous criminal and the head of an organised crime group implicated in murder, drug trafficking and fraud. So what do you make of what we've heard today? Do you have sympathy for Dave King, Darren Pearman or Ronnie Fuller? I understand that for many, it is as we said at the start of the podcast, that if you live by the sword, you need to be prepared to die by the sword. But I feel for Dave's wife and children. He was just 32. Many get into this gangster life at a young age, and I guess see no alternative going forward. How could they go back to the sort of lives that we might lead without the excitement and adrenaline of their lifestyles? What could they do? Many of these guys don't make huge amounts of money and could surely use their talents to make much more in normal life if channelled in other ways. But there are people dying seemingly every week pursuing this self-perceived glamorous lifestyle and I guess this isn't going to change anytime soon. But I go back to what I've said before. However much you enjoy this lifestyle, if you have a family, I don't know how you can really relax, do you? Whenever you have that unexpected knock at the door at 9pm on a Sunday, or you're woken by that noise at 3am on a random Tuesday, you must be on edge, as it can be just a matter of time before it is the visit to your home that you've been dreading. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. Please join us on the Facebook group to discuss this case or any other aspects of UK true crime. And just for a couple of quid a month, you can support the show at patreon.com slash UK true crime. You'll find 25 bonus episodes and other exclusive content. So that is all for me for now. So until we speak next week, with the exception of slagging off crap music, please be kind and of course, stay classy. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.